This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how Septimius Severus rose to the top after the year of the five emperors? Or how Cao Cao became the legend in China he is today? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and St. Louis, Missouri, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, the beginning of our third season and the third century. Are you excited? Are you pumped? I am so pumped. Yes, the beginning of the third century. And of course, the first century begins with 200 AD, not 300 AD, as I accidentally thought, Paul, to begin with, <laughs> and accidentally started researching some events at the beginning of the fourth century, because who would do that? Only only someone who wouldn't know much about history would do that. Definitely not myself, that's for sure. But Paul, we're here, another century begins. And from the sounds of things, you're in another city. New city, new century. New city, new century. Yep. I am on the road. I am in St. Louis. But AD history and history, it doesn't stop. So I'm here with a mobile setup on the road together with you. This morning, my time, late afternoon, your time. A modern marvel to be sure. But as far as the mistake you were referring to, that speaks to me as we were talking earlier about someone who's very much in need of a vacation. Yes, I'm getting there. And well, and also on a positive, I now have notes for when we start the fourth century. So two birds, one stone, I suppose. Woo! That's beautiful stuff. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's queue up our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. What? Evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. So, Paul, a new century awaits our planet, and especially the Roman Empire. And this is going to be a century that really tests Rome, putting it lightly. And there's one person in particular who's really at the focal point of this crisis of the 3rd century, as it would come to be known as. Indeed it is. In fact, because the 3rd century is so important in the case of Rome, we're going to be coming into a time that's known as the crisis of the 3rd century. In order to understand the crisis of the 3rd century and ultimately how we got there, we need to lay some groundwork and some framework to understand that going forward. And in this case, it has to start with the rise and then rule of Septimius Severus. You'll see why shortly, because in many cases, 
for all intents and purposes, that story all begins here. But I think it is best to set the scene. From the ashes of the year of the five emperors came the rule of Septimius Severus. Though we touched on him briefly in our What We Missed and the whole year of the five emperors, we do need a little bit more detail specifically regarding Severus's role in all of that, how that ultimately once again works out to leading to the crisis of the third century. And Severus was a senatorial general and largely considered a reliable workhorse type figure. Yet prior to the chaos of the year of the five emperors, he was really considered by no one to be a possible future candidate as an emperor. And this is not a Domitian-type situation where Domitian literally had no prospects or foreseeable path to get where he was. In this case, it's at least plausible to imagine that Septimius Severus could have ended up emperor. Domitian was a, the ultimate dark horse. But at the same time, Severus was a dark horse all his own. And the reason we know this is the case is because nobody is writing about him at the time or talking about him at the time as being a potential candidate among many, many others. So he was born in 145 AD in Leptis Magnus, which was a major settlement, which was made a colony of Rome by Trajan, which is a great honor. And it was located in Roman Africa, roughly around what we know today as the modern state of Libya. And he was born of the equestrian class. So it's that class right underneath the senatorial class that we know so well. His family was essentially part of what we consider the local aristocracy. So they're not this grand, well-known family in the empire. They're local celebrities at best, you know, municipal government type positions. They're kind of like the bigger fish in a small pond, as it were. And I think you get the idea. And he, even though he did have some ancestors that came, of course, from the Italian peninsula, he himself was not born and raised in the Italian peninsula. And we know now, especially after covering Trajan, that it isn't a prerequisite to end up in the position of emperor and and not be from the Italian peninsula. That all got broken with Trajan and, and being from modern Spain. And something else that's fascinating, Paul, you were talking about equestrian class. I finally actually began reading that book about the Romans I mentioned in the What We Missed episode. Yes, I finally yes. actually began reading it. And it was talking about these different classes and how like defined by how much you had like dictated yes, yes, your yes, class. Yes, yes, I was just about and, to mention that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, you need like something like 400,000. I, I can't pronounce the name of the Roman currency. Sesterius, something like 400,000 Sesterius. Yeah, and it was talked like that book I was reading was talking so much about like how much money you need to be required by each thing. And that's just really interesting. Obviously, money does play a factor into what class you are in today's society, but it's not like anyone's actually judging how like you have to have x amount to officially be one of these it's just a more ballpark thing in the west today obviously the yeah. the notion of class we're very class conscious but upward mobility is a lot more fluid 
and mm. it's not rigidly defined. And in this case, something that's interesting is in order to be part of the Senate, you had to make your fortune up to a certain point where you would at least qualify for such a position. But since there's only 600 senators at this point, there can be many people out there that are tremendously wealthy, but essentially on the waiting list, as it yeah. were. It's interesting to see how they structured their society and the figures they're using to determine who sits where and what opportunities are available to them. It is. It's really fascinating. It's just something I thought I'd share. And yeah, it's, it's just interesting, like Roman society and the structure of it. Could kind of have a video on Twitter. Video could kind of have a podcast into itself, <laughs> I suppose. Oh, totally. Absolutely. There's a lot there to come from. Yeah. And coming from the modern perspective, of course, we're a lot more, as I mentioned earlier, we're a lot more conscious of class, mm. to be sure, and how we define it and the nature and the rules around upward mobility. Largely, yeah. you and I live in countries where you can come from impoverished positions in life and rise to a greater status. These things do happen. Yeah. But in the case of Rome, they're very, very finicky when you start getting up towards the top and they have issues, to say the least, with such a situation. So he was also a very ambitious guy, though his career took some odd detours and, and certainly... He was not just a flash in the pan. It was a long career that saw periods of almost stagnation in a way. But he eventually ended up hearkening out to make a name for himself and his family on the Italian peninsula. And he wanted to become a member of the Senate. And interestingly enough, and this will become more and more relevant further down the line we get here today in this segment, but his initial work actually caught the attention of one Marcus Aurelius. He <laughs> identified him as somebody that was talented, that was trustworthy, that he's somebody that would want to be part of the inner cogs of how Rome operated in the future. So he benefited from his patronage, and Marcus Aurelius actually made on his personal imprimatur Septimius Severus as a member of the Senate. Oddly enough, for almost 20 years, his career somewhat stagnated for a number of reasons after initially joining the Senate. And the kind of appointments that he ended up getting were to areas where, like if you're a governor, per se, getting sent to places like Hispania or places like Gaul, you know, various places where there's a, not a heck of a lot going on. Nice places mm. to be, good quality of living, but it's not a place where you can really make a name for yourself because that's not where the big issues of the empire are occurring. But mm. he hangs in there. And in 190, he was actually made a consul. Now, you would think to yourself, oh, wow, he finally makes it to consul. Once upon a time in the Republic, that was one of the most powerful positions in the entire Roman state. That has obviously fallen off over time and mm. very important ceremonially. You know, if you're going to have ambitions, getting appointed a consul is usually a good sign that you'll be in the running down the road if that's something you're looking for in terms of becoming an emperor. But in 190 is not the year to take a good, accurate temperature of his appointment because that was the year known as the year of the 25 consuls. 
And basically, it was a shenanigan where Commodus's trusted hatchet man, in fact, Totem Cleander, who we talked about, who was a freedman, he was either a freedman or the son of a freedman, was selling the position of consul to the highest bidder. So, yeah, tell me about it. So you would have two <laughs> consuls a month, every month. And I believe one of the reasons that Cleander was doing this, I'm sure he was lining his own pockets because that's what you do in that case for mm. many people. I'm not <laughs> by no means giving it the thumbs up. It's not good practice, but it's a practice you'd expect. In addition to the fact that Commodus was so bad with money, I mean, he he spent like a drunken sailor. So you had to find new and interesting forms of revenue, especially when you're commissioning solid gold statues of yourself. Yeah. We talked about this as well in what we missed with the Year of the Five Good Emperors, when I think the, even the title of emperor was put up for sale. So anything, oh, yeah, yeah. anything came with a price at Rome. Everything had a price tag on it at this period of Roman history. Yeah, Julianus was in very high-stakes negotiation in that case. As we mentioned previously in our last episode of what we missed, it was not a good image. <laughs> it was not a good image, to say the least. So this is not really a good barometer to tell the ambitions or the or the aptitude where in the past and future, you put consuls there, even in a more ceremonial role, because they are largely capable, or at the very least, really well-connected and capable. You get the kind of idea we're talking about here. And then, of course, comes the year of the five emperors, which start with the rule of Pertinax, after Commodus was finally successfully assassinated by Narcissus, his, his wrestling coach and partner, by strangulation. And as you so wittily quipped at the time, Commodus was killed by his narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a wonderful quick one. I love yeah. that that that's classic Patrick Foot yeah. for anybody who's wondering. And so Pertinax comes to power and he has a, a pretty decent relationship with Severus and in the case of Pertinax had he not been assassinated he was going to be uh, looked at the initially a real reformer because he was looking to bring the Senate more into the equation and getting away from the excesses of Commodus, things of that nature. Something that in total, though we don't have the time here to get into it, was much more Republican in form, which is really very interesting. Unfortunately, he ends up getting assassinated by everybody's favorite mechanism for succession of power, the ultimate kingmakers in <laughs> Rome of this period, the Praetorian Guard. How many times have we heard this story, Patrick? How many times? You know what? I would compare the Praetorian Guard to the delete all button on like anything. It's like, okay, this has gotten a mess. Let's just let's just wipe it and start again. Like you could just sort of beckon upon them to just let's knock this one guy out and let's just try again. They'll do delete all button of Rome. <laughs> Absolutely. And so when Pertinax is assassinated. This really starts the merry-go-round. In the case of Severus, he does move on the situation quite expeditiously. So Pertinax is murdered in March of 193. And then by early April, that is when Severus's troops claim him as emperor and something that he 
does obviously embrace. At that point, when Julianus ends up making a claim very shortly thereafter, Severus just flat out ignores it. Just flat out ignores it. His claim, not Julianus, believe me, he will deal with Julianus, to <laughs> say the least. And he has a couple of other potential foes as well. One of this is Fertinicus Niger was one of his other main rivals. And in that case, he was in Syria at the time. And then Claudius Albinus, who at the time was governor of Roman Britain. And so he needed to begin narrowing down the number of fronts he had to confront in order to consolidate his claim onto power for the Roman Empire. And one of the first things he does is actually not military. It is political and, in a sense, diplomatic as well, which is of Albinus. He ends up making a concession to Albinus, which is he gives Albinus the title of Caesar. And this is interesting. So at this point in time, the title of Caesar actually goes to the current emperor's heir apparent, whether that be a son who was there waiting in the wings or an adopted son. It was a situation, I think, in all likelihood that both men knew was not a long-term arrangement, but Albinus at the very least, seemed contented to go along with it at that point in time. And more importantly, it buys Severus time to deal with him later. He kind of sidesteps him, and it looks on the outside like a power-sharing agreement, but realpolitik, it was just buy-in time. And of course, at that point, he also couldn't deal with Niger because he was too far away. He wasn't yet the person you had to deal with. But in the case of... Julianus. He basically did something that is a big deal. So for the most part, with the exception of the Praetorian Guard, you're not really supposed to have the military on the Italian peninsula or in Rome. So, you know, going back to Julius Caesar, the whole idea of crossing the Rubicon, which today is just a phrase we use for a decision in which there's no turning back that has incredible importance. The die is cast, if you will. You're not really supposed to have that sort of thing going on. But in this case, Severus marches on Rome, and he was pretty close by. He was stationed somewhere on the Danube at that point, and he takes his troops and he marches on Rome, which is where Julianus is. And so naturally, he has the muscle when he gets to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he manages to get the Senate to declare Julianus an enemy of the people and promises to pardon any Roman for their role in the murder of Pertinax. And this is particularly important when you're talking about the senators who were involved in all of that. Just something that's always so shocking. And it's one of these things where you compare it to modern society. And one of the things in history is we don't compare it to modern society. It's just how associated senators are with murdering people like oh God. from like not only with the background planning but the actual acting out the murder itself like if you put that in today's standards imagine like the senators the house of the, the senate on your end pool or the members of parliament on my end pool actually killing people like it's just mad but like i said we, we shouldn't be comparing 
history to us today. But when you do, it just always shocks me how how murder happy the actual senators themselves were in Rome. You know, it's interesting when you're making those kind of comparisons, obviously, because they're so difficult to make. One thing that we can say for sure is that we, you and I in particular, live in systems where you generally don't have politicians plotting to murder other politicians. Yeah. That's something that is thankfully very foreign to our own domestic experience. And hopefully it will remain as such. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. That's something I've always been very thankful for when it comes to politicians versus politicians in particular. Politicians (laughs) in particular, Mm. not other people. So he makes this promise to the Roman people because at this point, one of the big ways he is messaging himself as a leader, one of his big guiding points of light is that he is the avenger of Pertinax, that the idea that Julianus was behind the Praetorian Guard murdering him in cold blood is not something that, when it comes to Severus, that he was going to tolerate and he was going to have the last say. And what happens from there is rather interesting. One is, for those that he knew were actively involved in the murder of Pertinax in the Praetorian Guard. He had those individuals executed, as you would expect, as you Hmm. would very much expect. Then he did something else that was very interesting. For those who were members of the Praetorian Guard, but there was no evidence to suggest that they were a part of this in any way, he still dismisses them. So they're out of a job. So once he dismisses those members of the Praetorian Guard who were a member of the Guard at the time but not actually part of the plot to assassinate Pertinax, he dismisses them entirely and then fills their ranks with elite trusted members from his own legions. And this is interesting because prior to this point, the Praetorian Guard almost exclusively recruited from soldiers that were born and raised on the Italian peninsula. If you have the ambitions, I should say, to have a career in the Roman military, to be appointed to the Praetorian Guard is a huge deal. You get paid better. You don't have to serve as long. You get desirable assignments. It's a big deal. And now it's open to anybody in the empire that's part of the military. So you're beginning to see how the Romans, in a very Roman view, in a very Roman context, become more meritocratic in that respect and opening up opportunities that were otherwise had a very narrow selection pool based on the previous criteria. So it changes the nature of the Praetorian Guard itself, which is fascinating to say the least. All of this comes under that banner of being the avenger of Pertinax. Now, with Julianus out of the way, liquidated, as you could imagine, he then goes on to do something else when it comes to the memory of Pertinax, which is he holds a lavish funeral. So talking about triple-tiered pyres, large procession, (laughs) the whole thing. And this is following his triumphant march on Rome, which... I would like to mention real quick, was equally 
lavish. Now, he didn't do the Trajan thing where he came in on foot. You know, we're not talking about that sort of thing. But he came in dressed in his senatorial garb. You know, he's not coming in as a soldier. That would be a big no-no, to say the least. But he does come in, and he's celebrated legitimately because things have gone on, and this chaos has begun to ensue, and all of these different claimants and all of these issues and struggles going on throughout the empire, which are all inwardly focused. It's not like we're dealing with an external enemy here. It feels like half the time Rome and all the wars it fights are the wars against itself. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about, though obviously not so much during the period of the five good emperors where you have mm. the better part of a century where there is peace and stability. How good they are, we've talked about that in the past, yeah. but that's certainly a quality of the Pax Romana. So he has this lavish funeral for Pertinax. And once he is done with Julianus, he then turns his attention on Niger out in Syria. And at this point in time, Niger has not been inactive by any means. He has been marshalling his resources, especially politically, because he's looking to get the support of other Roman governors in the region, perhaps other vassal powers, satellite powers of Rome. And because he is the governor of Syria at the time, he also has three legions of his own, which is a considerable number. You can put up a fight with three well-prepared, well-supplied, well-trained veteran legions, to say the least. But when, in this case, Severus begins taking on his campaign against Niger, he doesn't go by sea, which you would think would be the thing to do if you were looking to just take the fight right to the enemy. Nope, he goes over land. So up the Italian peninsula, through the Balkans, to the Bosphorus, down through Asia Minor, and then, of course, into Syria. But there are obstacles along the way. And one of those major obstacles is a place that over time has been known as Byzantium, Constantinople, and, of course, today, Istanbul. So this is Byzantium being a pain again. <laughs> Not being a pain, I suppose, the correct, correct term for that. But why is this city always so important? Throughout history, it's always popping up. Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul, as reasons had so many different names. What makes this city so important, Paul? So you remember a conversation you and I were having a while back where you were telling me about how you and your girlfriend have a debate of history over geography? Yes, yeah. Which is funny in and of itself because... Geography is history and history is geography. Mm -hmm, yeah, that, that, that's the agreement we came to in the end. They are just so incredibly interlinked that there is no escaping the other. So if you have a mental map or if you're listening to us and you're able to pull up your own map, you're going to know if noticed a few things about that particular city. One is, of course, it's right there on the Bosphorus, which connects the Black Sea to the Dardanelles, and then to the Mediterranean. And obviously not at this time. You know, the only way out of the Mediterranean and at that point was through the Straits of Gibraltar or the Pillars of Hercules, it was no time. And then, of course, today you have the Suez, which only increases the stakes here. But they didn't have that at the time. However, it does connect the Black Sea 
with the Mediterranean, and it gives you access to the wider world via sea. And so from a naval perspective, having that point of control of the Bosphorus changes things very significantly, especially when you're talking about maritime shipping and economics and commerce and things of that nature, and when you're also dealing with another major aspect, which is that the city literally is the cradle between Europe and the Middle East. And that's one of the reasons why it's always been so important is that it sits in this literally ideal confluence of so much by land, by sea, that in many ways its geography has only risen its importance because of it serving as that confluence. And of course, later on, it would then become this really important place where it is the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Then, of course, it becomes the capital of Byzantium. Mm. Even though modern-day Turkey, it is not, Istanbul is not the capital. That's no. Ankara. But you get the idea. So basically, its geography dictates it. And as we've talked about so many times before, Patrick, at this time and for a long time after, you know, the so-called East, especially if you're talking about from a Western and, and European standpoint, mm -hmm. the East was synonymous with riches or the potential for riches, as it were. Mm. So the fact that Istanbul, Constantinople, Byzantium has become so important, has been entirely dictated by its geography and the economic situation, and militarily as well, because if you can control the Bosphorus, it's a total game changer. Something I've come to sort of say, I was talking about that argument about geography versus history, and this is a sort of phrase, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast before, but history dictates everything, but geography dictates history. In many ways, it does, yeah. That's the kind of, that, that's the stance I have on the matter. Totally. So, they're so interlinked, and that's really one of the, the, the reasons I mentioned, the major reasons why mm. this particular city just doesn't leave the importance of history well mm. into the modern age, to be sure. Mm. Even no. more so in the modern age, where there's even more maritime shipping, and there are even more important points of departure out of the Mediterranean. It's a major economic hub in that respect, and that's why it has been for as long as it is. But yeah. on his trip down to Syria, he ends up having to besiege Byzantium because one of Niger's allies is there. And when I say siege, I'm talking about years long, two or three year long siege. Now, Severus is not sitting there the entire time, I grant you. He sieges it, and of course, you leave a contingent behind to continue the siege. And then, of course, you make your way down to Syria. Mm. Once this happens, in the case of Severus, he gives Niger the option to go and live in exile. You can get out of this alive so long as you just go away. And Niger wasn't having it. <laughs> and it would be a fateful decision because in this case, Severus ends up dispatching with Niger. He eventually has a successful siege of Byzantium, which ends up having to get rebuilt and actually happens in the decade that we're talking about. But in this case, once those two are out of the way, he eventually ends up having to deal with Albinus in Great Britain. And Albinus, to his credit, was no small challenge to the ambitions of Severus. 
According to the written account by our old friend Cassius Dio, Albinus sat at the head of an army of some 150,000 in his British patch. As we mentioned, the major initial concession Severus made to Albinus was to grant him the title of Caesar, and thus doing so at the time, it was the title given to an heir apparent of a Roman ruler, a Roman emperor, whether it be his biological son or his adopted son, which, you know, we've seen many times before. And Severus drew first blood in the impending conflict by now giving the title of Caesar to his own son, Caracalla. And it's pretty clear to read between the lines here, which is that Severus most definitely felt he was in the position not only to play the expected jerk and back out on his original concession to Albinus, though also in all likelihood feeling his position strong enough to start the conflagration, which he did. This left Albinus with no real effective options on the board, at least as he saw it. And it seemed to believe that his only move was to confront Severus on the field of battle. Seems a little narrow thinking. And, and the reason I say this is because I do wonder if Albinus ever seriously considered creating his own fortress Britannica, fortifying the island to create his own personal fiefdom. There's a logic to that. Had he done so, I genuinely wonder if Severus could have actually done anything about it. Crossing the Channel was hard enough for a military invader just under a century ago. To say nothing of the difficulties of doing it 1,800 years ago with a waiting, trained, and fortified Roman legion standing by to fight on the coast. But despite having a considerable military force crossing the Channel into Gaul from Britain, Albinus required a great deal to go exclusively in his favor, and I gotta tell you folks, it didn't, in the long run at least. But despite having that considerable military force, and for all intents and purposes, Albinus was initially fortunate. He managed to trample Virius Lupus, who was loyal to Severus, might I add, in Gaul, after which Albinus's initial victory managed him to incorporate and marshal the resources of Gaul itself towards his campaign and making camp in Lugdunum, which was going to be his HQ and his proverbial grave in the end. It was at Lugdunum in February 197 where he fought the pitch set piece battle between both factions, apparently including 150,000 troops on both sides. This was a massive conflict, Patrick. Quite fitting for the stakes given what both sides were actually fighting for, but it was definitely never to be for Albinus because he was defeated outright. Severus was not merely satisfied with just defeating Albinus. No, no, no. Not by half. Severus wanted to brazenly humiliate him. Imagine this. This is unbelievable. According to Dio, Cassius Dio, Severus trampled Albinus's naked corpse with his horse and later beheaded him, after which he sent Albinus's head to Rome as a not-so-subtle warning for any ambitions for future dissenters. Chances are it worked pretty well. He also ordering the beheaded of Albinus's entire family, which included at least a son and his wife. Clearly, Severus had a propensity for severing heads from their bodies. What a dark and sardonic pun on the part of history. That's really incredible stuff. But what's interesting is that now that he has all of these folks out of the way, and he really has consolidated power, he ends up founding a dynasty, the Severin dynasty, that I believe ends up giving the empire, I think, seven emperors from that <laughs> dynasty. And for the most part, a decent amount of stability over that time. 
though the, the Severins most definitely do in their own way add to the seeds of what we're going to talk about in future episodes of this season about the crisis of the third century. A good deal of it actually has to do with economics and military expenditure, to say the least, but we'll get to that in a bit. The thing I want to talk here, though, about is the nature of the dynasty that he was founding, Patrick. Mm. This is where it kind of gets fascinating, and frankly, it gets a little weird. Yeah. Severus seeks to bring the, the gravitas and grandeur and reputation to his new dynasty by claiming that he was the adopted son of Marcus Aurelius. Now, let that sink in for a moment, shall we? Did he have any like, evidence behind that? <laughs> no, it was horseshit. <laughs> One thing you can say, at the very least, is that Marcus Aurelius was a benefactor to Severus in his early career. He is the one that was responsible for getting him into the Senate. But he never adopted him as his son. Never happened. Now, the Senate obviously knows this. Insofar as that goes, they don't really like it, but they're also not going to give them a hard time over it. Where this all comes into play, though, is how does this work out in the eyes of the Roman public across the empire? Now, even though the Romans themselves, whether they're living in Rome or elsewhere in the empire, they're not stupid, but they also don't have all the nitty-gritty information of what's happening in the highest echelons of power. Most Romans, like people today, don't have all the details of the charnel house of high politics, and this is no different there than it is today. We can't know everything. But if you're coming as a subject of the empire at this point, one thing that's undeniable is we've come, and this was very much true in terms of the Antonines when you're going from after the death of Trajan, starting with Hadrian, you're getting these bearded figures as emperor, whether it be on coinage or public statuary. Hadrian is very much responsible for that look, undoubtedly being influenced by what you so, <laughs> so cleverly described as his Greek fetish. Yeah. Plato has a beard. Aristotle has a beard. Socrates has a beard. So when it comes to the perception publicly, it's not implausible because they have these statues all over the place of these bearded figures on top of that coinage, which is still in circulation, especially if you're talking about Marcus Aurelius. Marcus mm. Aurelius was very highly regarded in his time and after. There was no trying to erase him from history. What else is interesting, though, he also frames himself, and this is kind of bizarre, as the brother of Commodus. <laughs> now, this does seem rather odd on its face, doesn't it? Yeah, like he's just trying to worm his way in there. He is. And on top of that, do you really want to take on all the baggage? Yeah, that comes with Commodus. I mean, goodness. To have lived through that, it's bizarre. But he twists it a very specific way. First off, he emphasizes far more that he's the adopted son of Marcus Aurelius than he does being the brother of Commodus. But you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater in this case. Mm. You, you can't have just one and ignore the other. He does embrace it, which is to say that even though in the case of Commodus, he gets a damnation memoriae, which basically is just a very huge public decree of giving this dead figure the finger and just 
singing about how awful he was. One of the ways that he takes the entirety of the baggage is he actually goes back and he has Commodus proclaimed divine, which you have to do, obviously, if you're going to take it all in. And so it's very interesting that Severus makes this play, because if you are in the high echelons of Roman politics, you know this is absolutely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And, you know, it's not that politicians from the beginning of time, and certainly true in modern history, have not made claims of being the rightful successor of some very celebrated prior leader. Mm. That happens all the time. There are plenty of people that try to ride on a great figure's coattails for their own aggrandizement and their own ambitions, profit, and fun. In this case, it's rather absurd. It's not implausible, like I said, if you're a member of the Roman public, but it's still there. And so he's trying to start his new dynasty on the back of the Antonine dynasty, which... As far Mm. as dynasties go, and certainly the Roman conceptions of it, ain't a bad place to be, to say the least. They were celebrated in total, even though there are clear exceptions in some of their actions during that time. And they're very much associated with stability and prosperity as being good emperors. We talked about in what we missed about Antoninus Pius. If you're asking me to be honest with you, even though he had certain flaws in certain policy areas, which is one of the reasons why we went back and talked about him a bit and what we missed. He still could deserve his own episode. That's how incredible he was. He was really the mm-hmm. pinnacle of the good emperor, which is to say good-humored, selfless, talented administrator, very much working towards what he thought was the public good and not for his own personal benefits or the people close to him or those who are helping keep him in power. That was kind of the reality of it. But So he's trying to build a back on that and kind of ride that wave. And initially, it definitely ends up happening. And so to understand how Severus got to this point and understanding a bit more about how he came to power, and we'll definitely talk in a future episode about some of his policy decisions and, of course, the successors, that lead to the crisis of the third century, that this is very much laying the groundwork for you listening, wherever you may be listening, to really have the basis from which to proceed, without a doubt. One thing that comes to mind to me is in regards to forming his dynasty off the back of the Antonines. Do you think any of that has to do with not being confident in his own family's status. Like you said, he wasn't, they, they weren't from a terrible background, but they definitely weren't from the upper echelons of Roman society. They weren't even from the Italian peninsula. Do you think he felt, oh, it'd be safer, people will respect and believe me more if I say I'm one of the Antonines? So that's a damn good question. I would imagine so. Because as you mentioned, he's born into the equestrian class and he eventually becomes a, a senatorial general. But he's not an Antonine. You know, he's not... Julio Claudian, or in the case of Vespasian and his dynasty, he's not coming from that level of celebrated and notoriety in terms of his family. So you have to believe that certainly has to be part of the equation. I don't really know how it couldn't be, to be honest with you. 
in addition to the fact that it makes a lot of political sense if you can pull it off, which it seems like he largely managed to do, it has to be part of the equation. Though, Hmm. and this is just Paul talking here, I personally would be a lot more interested in founding my own dynasty on my own merits and not trying to piggyback, despite how desirable, how desirable it would be to piggyback on such a legacy as the Antonines, but you'd imagine so, right? I think in the world of Roman politics, you needed to do some piggybacking, especially in mental times like this. Without a doubt. And in some ways, from a very practical standpoint, knowing the facts as we know them now, it's so cynical. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's so yeah. cynical. But that's what he chose to do. And I think that's probably one of the reasons he chose to do it. And it led us to where we are now, at the start of the third century. We're here. We are here indeed. With uh, Severus, the thing that came to mind for me was like a barnacle on the bow of a great ship. <laughs> <laughs> like, please, a hanger onger. I mean, there's less pleasant ways to define a hanger onger, but that well, that one cuts deep. Yeah, just sort of like, just clearly, like through all this madness, like of the year of the five emperors. If you were to compare that to a raging sea and Rome as the ship, he just held on like a barnacle, just held on to to the bow of that ship until the sea calmed down and he could rise to the top, I guess. So it would appear. But we're going to talk more about Severus in the future. But like I said earlier, it's important to know how he came to power, how he Mm. was making the basis for the Severan dynasty and the role that the Severan dynasty is going to play in the crisis of the third century, which is going to be one of the defining features of this third season of AD history, in addition to a great much else. We have an incredible century coming up in terms of what's happening and where, and expanding our scope even further, which I don't know about you, Patrick, gets me really excited. Yeah, same. I'm so, and like, things are starting to go a bit downhill for Rome, it's safe to say. Like, this is very much a doom and gloom so far with this uh, series. Like, we've just had the Hunt Dynasty come to an end in the previous century, and we're going to be talking more about that in a moment. And Rome, it seems to be Rome is starting to curtail, at least the Western Roman Empire is anyway. We've come out of this golden age, the Pax Romanus, as, as it's known as. And it's interesting seeing the fall of Rome. Oh, no doubt at all. And we're going to get into more of the details of what this all really means. And of course, it's going to be really interesting when we come to a rather pivotal figure and not too far off from now, and that being Constantine. Mm. That's still a little ways off for us, but we're going to see this picture change a great deal. And even looking back over the two centuries that we've done so far, The evolution of these powers, whether it be the Han Dynasty, whether it be the Romans, whether it be the Kushans, whomever, now we're beginning to see the tapestry become more complex and the breadth of it all begin to expand further that we can see how things are now truly changing over time in detail with each thread of the tapestry. That's really exciting stuff. That's very much at the basis of AD history where We're at a vantage point now where we're beginning to see the show itself and the very concept take on the form that you and I envisaged when we first set sail on this journey. Yeah, this is more than Rome and China, and we're starting to see that. (laughs) And we're going to keep 
building on and weaving that tapestry in just a moment. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. And thank you, Anna. Now, Paul, we have one of our wonderful patron-submitted questions to answer today. As you may or may not know, if you support AD History on Patreon at the $5 tier, you can ask a question to us and it will have the chance of being answered on air. It could be a question about anything, not only history, but also about how we do things behind the scenes here. However, Paul, this one is about history and it relates to something we only talked about a few episodes back. We did, and I think it's a really excellent question. When I saw this, I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's impressive. So here is our question submitted from Patreon. Quote, how much do you think the plague that was running rampant in the Roman Empire impacted Marcus Aurelius's writing of his Stoic philosophy in Meditations? Close quote. Now, that's a fantastic question. And really to answer it, to some extent, undoubtedly, this is speculation on our part. Yeah, definitely. I don't, yeah, you, you, you've definitely got more idea on this than I have, Paul, that's for sure. Well, just to give a little idea, and this is by no means an A to Z on Stoic philosophy. I'm not a philosopher, and I haven't studied Stoicism in tremendous depth, but I believe that between the two of us, we may know enough to get some insight mm. as to how this might have impacted him. So one of the core tenets of Stoicism, certainly as is outlined in Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, is the idea of the intellect being the prime factor overall. That in terms of external factors that affect your life, they are beyond your control. All you can control are your own thoughts and your own actions, and you can't give too much mind over those things that you cannot control. Mm. And that through rationality and through the intellect that you can overcome these kind of difficulties. And when you understand that part of the equation, then you kind of start getting into the meat of this very question. So the first thing I'm going to say is there's a lot of factors that we do know very likely went into his thinking beyond merely the Antonine Plague. Not that the Antonine Plague can be merely anything. His personal life, Marcus Aurelius's personal life, was very much in turbulence in two ways in particular. One is, of course, Commodus. And in the case of Commodus, he was a little jerk. And despite yeah. the fact that Marcus Aurelius did everything in his power to make sure that he was ready, able, and, and properly reared to eventually hold power over the entire empire. The fact of the matter is Commodus was very poorly suited to the job and at times borderline negligent and in general he was a disaster. And as a young man, no doubt, this was something that was very clear to Marcus Aurelius that his son was a very, very different man than he. So Undoubtedly, his behavior and his inclinations and his rearing and everything that goes along with that had to have factored into his writing at the time of his meditations. 
The other thing that was factoring into this as well regarding his personal life actually had to do with his wife, Faustina the Younger. There's no sugarcoating this. There's no euphemism. She was running around on him. And Marcus knew that. Unfortunately, there wasn't a heck of a lot he could do, especially because a lot of his wealth and dowry and all that fun stuff actually came from her family. So it's not like he could just throw her out to the curb, as it were. kind of needed her. Yeah, that, and that's what I understand. He did, in fact, love her. There's no question about it. There's a lot of different factors as to why she did what she did. I'm not so interested in that. But undoubtedly, this would have caused him some anguish. How could it not? Mm, No, definitely. Yeah, it would. It would make you assess things in life, where you've got a wife who's running around willy-nilly and a son who's a bit of a tool. Uh, just a bit of like, a tool. <laughs> just a bit of a tool, to put, in, <laughs> love, to put lightly. I, I love that term. <laughs> it would make you consider some things. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to Commodus, there's no question that he was on his best day a tool. So you have those things going on. In fact, actually, when it comes to Faustina the Younger, she actually died while Marcus was in power. And Marcus really has never remarried and actually had her deified, interestingly enough. So that brings us to the question of how this might have affected him in regards to the Antonine Plague. And when you take into account, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, Patrick, the idea of not allowing yourself to be overpowered by an external factor, something like a epidemic of this nature, yeah, something that you literally can't control, and for that matter, at that time, barely understand, you would have to imagine that this particular challenge, the greatest challenge that he faced as emperor, and he faced many of them, to be to be sure, mm. especially when you're dealing with foreign wars, issues on the Danube, issues in Parthia, you get the idea here. In, in order to even handle the day-to-day challenges of this, it almost begs the question, how could he not be stoic and manage to survive it with his sanity yeah. intact? You kind of got to, you'd think maybe his his philosophical ideas would be more entrenched by this uh, plague that hit Rome. You think it would make him believe more strongly in it. That's actually a really good point. It almost seems like a necessity. So yeah. did it factor into it? I mean, I guess the question is, how could it not? Yeah. How could it not? Because they were really legitimately dealing with something that was beyond their control and at the time beyond their real understanding. The the discovery of germs was still, yeah. you know, basically 1,500 years away. And we're seeing how we're dealing with it now. Like, yeah, yeah. It could not be any different, to say the yeah, least. Yeah, it'd be so worse then. <laughs> yeah, luckily we're not dealing with a, a mortality rate of 25%, thankfully. No, thankfully but not, no. The other thing is, and I, I mentioned this briefly in a previous episode, when he was writing his meditations... He was actually being tended to by the famous and fellow that we covered very in-depth, the physician Galen. As we had mentioned, one of Galen's most interesting and notable qualities as a physician was having a very strong understanding in the ancient world and appreciation for pharmacology. And Hmm. he was tending to Marcus, and he was giving him a concoction that very notably included juice from the poppy plant. Opium, a.k.a., more or less. Yeah, so he was 
experiencing a somewhat euphoric and, and somnolent state, which in this yeah. case, you have the pressures of the world and empire on your shoulders. I'm not surprised. No, yeah, I think I'd feel pretty stoic if I was full of um, opium as well. Well, that or you'd just be asleep. <laughs> or, yeah, or that, or, yeah. Or depending on the situation. I would be too stressed. <laughs> no, no, not, no, certainly not. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, right? But mm. when I see this, all I can think to myself is, how could you not embrace stoicism and expect to survive? It seems like this would entrench, and we see this with other things, like events like this make you feel more strongly in, I know, to call a philosophy of faith. I mean, faith's a very odd word with a lot of provocative meanings, but it makes you more faithful in what you believe in sometimes instances like this. It makes you believe stronger in those things because it, it, it's a coping mechanism. Oh, by, by all means it is. And faith has many different connotations, but in this case, specifically referring to the confirmation of a belief based on trials and tribulations, which you have to imagine was probably the case here. Marcus Aurelius was an incredible figure, both historically and as a human being, and rightfully so. There's no question that he embodies the philosopher king that Plato talks about in the Republic. And you very much get the belief that when you read the meditations and you see the historical record, that Stoicism was something that was his guiding point of life and life. It's how he ordered his universe. And I'm not going to lie, there's a lot that is extremely appealing to that concept. Think about all the things mm. that we worry about in our everyday life that are beyond our control. Most things. When it comes to worry, we have so many different euphemisms, concern, mm. cause, uh, you, you name it. But worry over things that we can't control, even though they may affect us, the question isn't, what's going to happen that's beyond our control. The question is, what do we do when it comes upon us and we do have an element of control? So in that case, based on the circumstances, it had to be center in his mind in terms of the Antonine Plague because it's really unfortunate. It's a double, double-sided sword. I, I, I always seem to believe that Marcus Aurelius would have been a fantastic, relatively speaking, peacetime emperor where he wasn't dealing with these huge issues that are incredibly difficult for our own world leaders today to handle. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it, yeah. It would have been interesting, but that's going into speculative history, that's for sure. Undoubtedly, but at the same time, if you're going to deal with these epic challenges, certainly you would want somebody like Marcus Aurelius at the helm. Yeah, who someone has such a strong belief in stoicism to guide you through it. Absolutely. And there's a reason why Stoicism has endured. There's a reason why Marcus Aurelius is thought of so highly in history, both as a historical figure and as a human being. And there's a reason why his writing, The Meditations, is still published today. Yeah. I remember seeing an interview with former Marine Corps General and former Secretary of Defense James Mattis. And he always keeps a copy of Marcus Aurelius's meditations on him wherever he goes. And James Mattis is one of the most respected figures in modern American history, without a doubt, for a number of reasons. But that's a different story. The point is that it had to have affected him. I don't know how it couldn't. I mean, if you're going to be in that situation, stoicism seems like a pretty damn good way of handling things. Yeah, couldn't have put it better myself, Paul. 
Thank you so much for that question. And remember, if you guys have a question for us that you want to hear us answer, then please do become a patron over on Patreon of AD History. $5 a month gets you the chance to answer the last question and we will hopefully answer it. There'll be a link down in the description. Yes, absolutely. And if you donate at the minimum $3 a month, in addition to many other wonderful benefits, you will get a new episode, every new episode of AD History two days early before we release the episode publicly. And, and this is really cool because of Patreon, we have a special RSS feed for those who donate to us that if you plug it into your podcatcher of choice, it will download into your podcast app of choice automatically when we release it two days early and it comes right to you. It's really incredible. It's always there for you two days early. We always release on Saturday. means you'll get it on Thursday. But with that, we'll be back right after a few words from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Patrick, we're going to go into depth into a figure that has seemed to pop up a few times in our last few episodes, specifically regarding the Han Dynasty. And, and that is our very multi-talented, very scholarly, refined warrior by the name of Cao Cao. And in this case, we're going from the Han Dynasty and its collapse to the period and events that are leading to the formation of the Three Kingdoms. And Cao Cao could not be more important in that regard in terms of what happens next and understanding exactly how he did it. So, Mr. Foote, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, um, I'm sure you've been listening for quite some time now. And if you haven't been listening to previous episodes, go back and listen. But I've been tracking a period of time which is known as the end of the Han dynasty. It's about a 40-year period or so from about 180 to about 220. So we're really in the thick of it right now, this quite epic expanse of time. It's been really fun tracking one historical event over multiple episodes like this. And it's time for the spotlight to be firmly on Cao Cao. So if, if you know anything about the Three Kingdoms or Chinese history, you'll know the name Cao Cao. He's one of the most famous figures from this period of Chinese history. By the end of the second century AD, where we ended the last episode, the Han Dynasty was pretty much over. And after much fighting and civil war, in its place were a variety of smaller regions run by generals and others given autonomy during the Re Yellow Turban Revolt. If you remember that, the former emperor gave different warlords their own power. They ran with it. And most noticeably of these were the poet general Cao Cao. And he was an incredible 
interesting figure. And as I see a note in my thing, he could slaughter you with either the sword or the stanza. A very fitting <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. I do. No, it's very true. He, he, had, he had a way. He was a great mind and a great blade. Brains and brawn all wrapped into one. And during this period, he had amassed a huge amount of land, which made up of basically the former northern part of the Han dynasty. And this area would go on to become Sao Wei, the first of the three kingdoms in China's three kingdom period. Though we aren't at that point just yet. This decade of Chinese history is all about battles. There was a lot of fighting going on during this time period. So a lot of different characters coming in and out of the story. A lot of different battles going on in different places. And of course, Sao Sao and his men were essential figure in all this fighting so let's get into it. i think i've got about eight or so battles to talk yeah. about yeah like i said like in 10 years to have that many battles gonna knock you out and the first one of these battles actually happened a year prior in the year 200 a.d and this is the battle of Gwandu. let's just say huge apologies for mispronunciation going forward for this one this battle was against the warlord yuan shao and Yuan Shao had been persuaded by fellow warlord Liu Bi to attack Cao Cao's lands. Yuan Shao thought this would be an easy victory for him, simply due to how much larger his army was compared to Cao Cao's. This battle is believed to have taken place along the Yellow River, and Yuan Shao had an estimated 110,000 troops. Cao Cao is thought to have had just 40,000. However, Cao Cao, as we mentioned, was just as smart as he was strong. And he had a real simple plan to take down this massive army. Instead of attacking Yao Shuan's men directly, he instead attacked Yuan Shuan's supply bases. So what good is a massive army if you can't feed them or water them or house them? And by simply doing this, Yuan Shuan's army quickly became malnourished and this was a huge victory for Cao Cao despite the odds. So what we're talking about here actually heads back to a really interesting old military maxim, which I think you'll appreciate. It's even more true today, but it definitely was true then as well, is that when it comes to military planning, that amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. This is really important because when we think about warfare, especially ancient warfare in particular, we think a lot more about the prowess of the individuals on the field and mm. living off the land, things of that nature. But while that's certainly true, undeniably, when you're dealing with numbers of troops into the six figures, so over 100,000 men on one side, 40,000 on another. You can't expect always to be able to live off the land. You Think of the things that you need, even in an ancient setting, in mm. order to fight a successful campaign. Obviously, you need the troops. You need to be able to train them. You need organization. You need capable officers. You need a functioning and well-understood and accepted chain of command. You need to make sure that they have weapons you need to make sure that you're able to furnish those weapons. You need to make sure you can replace those weapons. They need food. They need water. They need to be able to transport more heavy equipment, not just light infantry of the time type of thing. And all of those issues largely fall under the category of logistics because 
you have to set up supply bases. You need to be able to have the resources to do these kind of things because the army marches on its stomach. It fights on its stomach. They need to sleep. They need to be able to have some element of comfort. You know, you can only be so Spartan in reality and still expect to fight well. These are all really important things. And so when you're understanding warfare, there are three general levels at which war is fought. And we'll start from the top down. And the first one is known as strategy or grand strategy. These are the big goals, the big plan. Use a well-understood example like Nazi Germany. Big plan is to knock out the Soviet Union and then eventually just corner the British because they have no other allies on the continent and mm. then come to a Carthaginian peace. Big goals. And it encompasses not just the war, but the diplomacy and the politics and the economy and all of these different aspects go into grand strategy. Then now in the post-Klauswitzian era, we have something that's known as the operational level. And the operational level is logistics at its very heart. Things like making weapons, getting weapons to them, training people, setting up supply bases, food, all of those things that need to happen that are not necessarily as glorious, to say the least, in comparison to these other tasks, but they're utterly vital. And when they become disrupted, you are literally cutting off half of the body of the opposing force. Because over time and through exhaustion and everything that goes into fighting, being able to handle that, if you disrupt the other army, the opposing force on the operational level, they're not going to be operating much longer. And the other one, the one that everybody is most familiar with, is the tactical level. How are you fighting on the field? What's the quality of the generalship in battle? Things of that nature. How it fights. And basically, the tactical and operational levels are all there to support the strategic or grand strategy level. And that's really important to understand, especially in understanding this situation, but warfare in general, to say the least. So that's something I want to interject with here, because when you're talking about this and you're using this example in particular, the military planning aspect of it is crucial to understand on a much greater level and in a bit more depth in order to really be able to contextualize and take away what it is that Sao had actually accomplished in this battle. And I think that's pretty interesting. Now, as far as more relative examples of the kind of thing we're talking about, something people would know a lot more about in terms of what Cao Cao did, essentially doing the same thing. The first one, of course, is the Battle of the Atlantic during the Second World War, where you had mm. the German Kriegsmarine mostly using U-boats, attacking British and Allied merchant shipping to cut off the British Isles from the rest of their empire, the United States, so they couldn't get the necessary imports to continue fighting the war because the British are were at that time certainly a maritime superpower that was very dependent on imports. Everything from oil to grain, you name it. That's an example of attacking and going after the operational level in that case. And another one, this is a rough translation, kind of a paraphrase of a quote. It's by Napoleon you know, some hundred, hundred or so mm. years earlier than the first example, which is wherever wood will float, there I will find the Royal Navy. And in his case, <laughs> the thing about Napoleon was he was a 
tremendous general and leader when it came to leading successful armies on land. Yeah. He was hopeless at sea. Yeah. And the British did a very fine job. I'm not just talking about like Trafalgar, which obviously turned the tide on this significantly, but he was penned into the continent. He may have controlled Europe for a time, but he was also, because of the Royal Navy, a prisoner of it. And that's why you saw things like the Continental System, because there wasn't a heck of a lot he could do at a point. So it, it's a very interesting two examples, of the kind of thing that we're seeing with South out here. And it's just incredible stuff and seeing how this plays out in that time. So I want to give those examples because I think it can definitely bring a level of understanding to you listening to us wherever you may be listening as to what Sousa has managed to pull off here. Too right, Paul. And once again, one of the perks about this podcast is your military history background. I don't really have much of a history in military background and tactics. And one of the benefits working with you naturally is the <laughs> fact that you, my interesting friend, and your incredible background when it comes to linguistics and the history of names. <laughs> so I guess so, yes. Two parts of, of the same piece. Yes. So as we were talking about, a Sao Sao could easily launch some surprise attacks and beat this army super quickly. And Sao Sao himself went on to claim that he killed 70,000 of Yuan's men and he lost just 8,000 of his own. We aren't too sure about these because it's Sao Sao claiming this himself, but that's some impressive numbers, that's for sure. No, something that is interesting, though, is when you mention the numbers, is that when it comes to ancient battles, one of the difficulties for modern historians is the knowledge that a lot of times these numbers are exaggerated. Yeah, these numbers, we just don't know, unfortunately, how accurate these numbers are. But as we carry on, that was in 200 AD, and it was already by 201 AD. There was another battle, and that was the Battle of Kang Ting. So at the previous battle, Yuan Shao himself did not actually die. Instead, he retreated south of the Yellow River and maintained a presence slash influence there. Cao Cao's men in the aftermath of Guandao were too drained to attack again. Instead, Cao Cao wanted to take out other warlords, but after being told that his former enemy, Yuan Shao, was maintaining power in the south, he thought, I better go deal with him first, actually. So after resting up and drawing supplies from across his land, Cao Cao marched to Yuan Shao, and in a quick and decisive battle, the last of Yuan Shao's men were defeated, and this was the final encounter between Cao Cao and Yuan Shao, and Yuan Shao died of an illness a year later, still humiliated by this defeat. That's Yuan Shao done with, or so we think. This history is very much like, almost written like fiction at some points. It's really fascinating stuff. Well, in a sense, when it is Cao Cao and his own people that are probably writing the initial histories on it, mm -hmm. that probably explains at least some of what we're talking about here. Mm. But in this case, check the box off. Ding, next contestant. So the next battle comes the following year in 202. This was the Battle of Bowang. And while Cao Cao and Yuan Shao had their battles, Liu Bei, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Liu Bei was the one who tempted Yuan Shao to go battle Cao Cao in the first place. While Cao Cao and Yu Shua were battling, Liu Bei gained influence in the Jing province. Liu Bei was eventually sent to the area of Bowang in this province to defend it from Cao Cao's inevitable invasion. And while Cao Cao does go to invade the land, he actually doesn't go himself. 
Instead, he sends three of his generals to lead the attack there, with the leader of these uh, three generals being a man by the name of Zhao Huandun. Liu Bi saw these men coming and set fire to his own tent and retreated. Zhu Haodun wanted to pursue him, but his men were uh, suspicious that this was a trap. However, he ignored his men and followed the fleeing Liu Bei, leaving his men to guard this burning camp. And obviously, this was an ambush because we know he burnt his own tent. And Zhihan Dun was defeated pretty quickly. So Zhihan retreated back to his men who he left at the camp and they all fled. So this battle is interesting. It marks a rare loss for Cao Cao. Even though he wasn't actually there, it was still his team that lost. And Liu Bei is going to be a very vital figure going forwards as well. The fact that Cao Cao wasn't present, what does he take from this lesson? Does he eventually feel the need to be on the scene from here on out? You would think so. Um, I didn't read anything proving that myself, but that would be the logical thing. It's kind of, you notice the, the only battle he's lost so far is the one he wasn't at. You kind of think, huh, I probably need to be here because the, the specific reason why they lost then was because of their own choices. It wasn't like they were following Sao Sao's orders. They weren't like, what would Sao Sao do? They were thinking, now nah, let's just go for it and we'll see Sao Sao's brilliant tactical mind in some future battles. And going gung-ho to a, following that, that isn't something Sao Sao would have done, at least for my research anyway. It does seem to be somewhat out of character based on what we know. When I think of Sao Sao, and I think some Star Wars fans out there will appreciate this, <laughs> is when I think of Cao Cao, I think of Grand Admiral Thrawn. Mm. You may not be familiar with that, but if there, are Star, the Wars, Star Wars fan. if there are Star Wars fans out there listening, and I know you're out there, <laughs> when I think of Cao Cao, I think to myself, Grand Admiral Thrawn, you know, just, he's not the complexion of a very deep blue with borderline glowing red eyes. <laughs> and there's not a chance he sounded as good as one Lars Mikkelsen, to say the least. But that's another story for another time. But <laughs> next contestant. So next contestant, so that was 202. In 203, there are no battles. Sao Sao and his men get a little break, but not for too long, because by 204, we have the Battle of Yi. And this is also known as the Battle of Yi Sheng. I'll just be going with Yi because it's easy to say. This time, Sao Sao faced Yuan Sheng. This is the son of Yang Shuao. So this is like, you killed my father, now I must avenge you. Like, so this is some real poetic stuff, and it makes sense because Sao Sao was a poet, so he pointed blemish romanticize some of these events of course there's the romance of the three kingdoms one of those famous accounts of this but has really glorified this time in chinese history and this yuan shang he wanted to attack Sousa while he was crossing the yellow river once again so leaving his city of yi under the watch of one of his supporters shen pei Sousa, however caught wind of this and headed to yi knowing that it wasn't properly defended and this led to Cao Cao and his men besieging the city via underground tunnels his men dug. Shen Pei retaliated with tunnels of his own and dropping boulders on the entries of the city. Wow. Yeah, this might sound like a good idea, but it really wasn't because between these tunnels and trenches they all dug and these blocked entrances, the city became incredibly isolated. This was a walled city, so Cao Cao can't come in, but you guys can't come out. And also supplies can't come in. And with this, supposedly half the city's population starved to death. Yeah, I mean, this is a classic siege situation here, where obviously, in many cases, a siege mentality can be very self-defeating over time. It's the most extreme example of cutting off an army or any sort of force that's resisting you from even the possibility of resupply, food, and things of that nature. 
and over an extended period of time, especially when you have a large population of non-combatants present because we're dealing with mm. a walled city, it's tragic, but not unfortunately surprising that so many perished due to the fact that they were under siege. Yeah, it's just, it was the tactic they went with and it really turned back on them because by the time Yuan Shang arrived back in the city of Yi, it was too late and this was another decisive victory for Cao Cao and that was in 204. In 205, we have the Battle of Nanpi and this time Cao Cao faced Yuan Tan, the other of Yuan Shao's sons. So he killed their dad and now both his sons are after him. I just find this so... It's almost like an anime to an extent. It really does feel like that. And trust me, like anime and Japanese media, we're going to talk about that sort of towards the end of this in a weird way, where okay. how Cao Cao's best remembered. This son fled his land at the mere mention of Cao Cao, however. Yeah, Yuan Tan wasn't like his father or his brother. He was, I think history depicts him as a bit of a bit of a warrior, a bit of a coward. Uh, this means when Cao Cao arrived at Nampi, he easily claimed it for himself. However, allies of Yuan Tan, the Wuhuan people, realized that this and they rallied behind him and they prepared 500 horsemen to attack Cao Cao in Yuan Tan's honor and in the honor of Nampi. And they proved quite worthy opponents for Cao Cao and he overcame them despite losses. Eventually, Yuan Tao himself did appear to take on Cao Cao, but after some fighting, he began to flee once again. But upon being captured, he begged to be saved. He was like, please, don't kill me. If you don't kill me, I will make you and all your men rich. But the story goes that he was decapitated before he could <laughs> even finish speaking. This Yuan Tao, Tan, he doesn't seem like history has looked fondly on him. And this meant Nanpi was now Cao Cao's and the entire Yuan family were dealt with. Cao Cao had eliminated the father and eliminated the two brothers, the two sons. I think Yuan... Shang lived a little bit longer, but yeah, we're not going to hear from them again. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that they have been liquidated. Yeah. I'm curious, you had mentioned when we were talking in pre-roll about how you saw some maps. If we were to look at where he's conquering geographically, where is he stitching this all together? So all of this is currently going on roughly around sort of kind of just south of modern Beijing. If you look at a map of China, that's where Nampi kind of is, that sort of area. And it's just that area of land he's really claiming and calling his own. And if we look into a map of the Three Kingdoms, you will see that Sao Wei, as it does go on to become, is primarily composed of the northern part of the former Han dynasty. That would make sense based on what we know. And, yeah. And where yeah. the Wei Kingdom will eventually end up settling. Yeah. So the Battle of Nampi was in 205. 206, he got a break. It's good to know that he's able to work in a year's break here or there. He can't yeah. keep fighting like this constantly. No, no. And uh, spoilers, this fighting might be a bit of his downfall. But before that, in 207, we had the Battle of White Wolf Mountain. And this was the aforementioned Wuhuan tribe. Um, they worked with young Yuan Tan in the previous battle we mentioned. And because of that defeat, they wanted to then take Cao Cao out. And they also thought, hey, if we could stop his domination, they could claim all of China. Not a bad thing. So Cao Cao, however, Cao Cao's men and the Wuhuan tribe collided completely unexpectedly. Like, they weren't ready for battle at all. They sort of just bumped into each other. And they were like, oh boy. Yeah, we need to we need to do something about this. And this caused stress on both sides. They kind of just started flailing at each other without much of a tactic, just bashing, see what happened. 
and amongst all this madness, Cao Cao reached higher ground. This was the White Wolf Mountain battle after all. So he reached this higher ground and up high, he could see the weak spots in the Wuhuan army. And up here, he was like, go attack there. Like I said, this is just some brilliant tactical mind. In amongst all this madness, he thought, no, I've got the higher ground. <laughs> I know that Star Wars <laughs> reference. <laughs> he had he the went, high ground. Oh, he boy. had the high ground and he could easily take out this clan here. So that's another victory for Cao Cao. And this all comes to a head, this decade of battles in 208 AD. And this is with the Battle of Red Cliffs. Cao Cao wasn't the only one busy fighting during these years. If you remember Liu Bei, who we mentioned previously, uh -huh. he joined forces with another warlord, Sun Quan. And Cao Cao dominated what became what was north of the Han Dynasty. Liu Bei and Sun Quan, they joined forces because they wanted to make sure he didn't take the south. Because this would, in effect, bring the entire Han Dynasty under Cao Cao's rule. And this Battle of Red Cliffs actually took place partially on water. And as Cao Cao came from the north, him and his men weren't really prepared for water. Like you mentioned in Napoleon, they weren't good on the sea. Mm. This is a lake in this case. Cao Cao's men were also so tired and unwell. And you would be after almost a decade of fighting, you would be exhausted. And the combined forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan were actually able to defeat Cao Cao and his men, not kill Cao Cao. This led him to retreat, meaning the South would be free from his rule. And this was it forever now, because Liu Bei and Sun Quan, these two warlords who came together, were the two other rulers of the forthcoming Three Kingdoms. And this is the first time that the Three Kings, quote-unquote kings, more emperors, of the Three, quote-unquote kingdoms, would fight each other. So this was like the grand meeting of the three that would go on. Like I said, it's really poetic to some extent. It's almost like Lord of the Rings-esque. Yeah, it definitely is. And based on what I know of Cao Cao, I get the feeling that Cao Cao doesn't retreat. He just advances in the opposite direction. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I didn't retreat. I just, I decided to go uh, invade up north again instead. That's an old adage from the U.S. Marine Corps. Marines never <laughs> retreat. We only advance in the opposite direction. <laughs> Just like there are no ex-Marines except for Lee Harvey Oswald and Charles Whitman. <laughs> Very so, good. Yeah, just just a little, little thing there. Something I would be interested to know, I don't know if this information is even available, is being able to see the casualty numbers and the attrition that Cao Cao have been experiencing. So after a decade of war, how much of his army that started in all that fighting how much of that still exists here at the Red Cliff? I don't know myself, but yeah, it'd be so it would be interesting to know that. And it would be interesting in some morbid way to know Cao Cao's death toll, basically. How many people died at the hands of Cao Cao and his men? Because it's it's incredible. Yeah, there I mean there are a lot of factors that go into every battle and a lot of factors that go into the long-term success of any army. And in this case, it's interesting to see Cao Cao's grand strategy come into play because at this point, it seems like he's gotten overly aggressive and has ambitions that are not able to be realized at this point. So in, in the case of any army, one of its successes is, of course, taking hardened veterans that have seen successful combat and promoting them through the ranks. The only problem is these people also die. And mm. so I'm curious how much of his army are truly the battle-hardened veterans and how many of them are rookie replacements. Yeah, and, picked up along the way. 
Exactly. And how much of the veteran leadership still exists from these previous battles? Because that's a definite factor. Experience counts for a lot when you're fighting in this way, without a doubt, and making sure that those individuals continually get promoted to greater levels of power so you're able to disperse that specialization and experience to the lower ranks and you have a cohesive chain of command and you're better able to fight. So I'd be really curious to see those numbers or analysis if it even exists. I think you've also got to remember, Paul, one of his top men at a time fell for a really obvious trap. So I wouldn't put too much stock in his men. <laughs> not, not all of us can be Napoleonic geniuses of warfare, to say the least. Even though in the case of Napoleon, he had his big hats, as they like to call him, his yes. generals that were all extremely talented. But we'll talk about that at another time. When we get to that. Yeah, absolutely. But in this case with South South, I mean, we have ourselves a, a classic warlord here, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And this was such a busy time for Cao Cao and his men. Uh, China was in chaos and Cao Cao was trying to bring the once united Han dynasty under his command one battle at a time. And while his battles and victories were remarkable, time took its toll on him and his men, meaning that China, it wasn't destined for China to be all of his. This final defeat, however, proves instrumental in the formation of the Three Kingdoms. That's really happening soon, guys. I promise you. I know I've been teasing the formation of the Three Kingdoms <laughs> for all this time. We're so close to getting there now, I promise. And I'll stop yeah. talking about China for ages after that. <laughs> That's not going to be easy to do, to say the least. Yeah, so much is going to be happening there. But that's South South's battles over the decade pool. All right. Question time for Mr. Foot. Mm. Naturally, as you had mentioned earlier, Cao Cao wasn't the only individual that was out trying to take over the world. In terms of what's happening elsewhere, in terms of other battles that Cao Cao or his forces were not a part of, what was some of that going on simultaneously? So, yeah, as you mentioned, and as kind of hinted towards, Cao Cao wasn't the only one fighting at this time. There was so much going on in this period. I decided to just focus on Cao Cao because he was the busiest. But in 203, we had the Battle of Jiaqu. And this was just a small indecisive battle between the aforementioned Sun Quan and Luo Bao. They were the other two leaders of the other two free kingdoms. Then in 208, things did get pretty busy. Not only did we have the Battle of Red Cliff, we had the Battle of Zhangzhou, where uh, Son Bao was victorious over Liu Bao. And then we had in 208 as well, the Battle of Yaman. I really didn't look much into these battles, I must admit, Paul. Brief bits. We had a naval battle between the Song Dynasty and invading Mongols. And then there was also another uh, naval battle of the Han versus the Ming in the Battle of Pyongyang, also in 208. That one remains to this day one of the largest naval battles in China's history. That's incredible. I thought that was really remarkable to read that, that all the way back in 208, China had perhaps their biggest battle on sea. Yeah, that is interesting because traditionally, though we'll get into this, what I'm about to say at another time, China is not necessarily known for its naval prowess. No. It's very much what we would call in military terminology a land animal, whereas Mm. Great Britain is a sea animal. Very different things where, like in the case of Britain or the United States, we have to project power. Whereas Mm. in the case of China, they're far more traditionally focused on land and land combat. Though there was a time where this came very close to not being true and China almost became a very significant 
naval power. But we'll talk about that at another time. Hmm, sounds interesting. It is incredibly interesting. It, but we'll tease that for another time. <laughs> now, you know, you and I are talking about the image of Cao Cao that you and I have gathered in, in this whole experience. And it leads me to the question, how is Cao Cao viewed in modern China? So I believe in modern China, he's like one of the most beloved figures from their history. That's sort of what I could gather. He was a really respected war leader and just one of these sort of mythical great figures that they look upon to think, wow, he was incredible at what he did. And that's the image I could gather online as well. And as I sort of hinted towards in Japanese culture as well. Uh, so when I was looking into Cao Cao and the Three Kingdoms and all these battles, two things kept on coming up. One of them was uh, Age of Empires, I believe, which is a video game. They did like a oh, Three Kingdoms. I loved yeah. Age of Empires growing up. <laughs> I don't play them myself, but um, they did like a Three Kingdoms game. So a lot of that popped mm. up. But also another video game series called uh, Dynasty Warriors kept on popping up. Never heard of and, it. No, this is like a Japanese series where, and I think it's all centered around the Three Kingdoms. I might be wrong, though. At least one of the games is oh. better set all around the Three Kingdoms. And South South's one of the main characters in it, obviously. And was, that was also really interesting to read as well. Like, this guy's been turned into a video game character on multiple occasions. <laughs> so he's clearly a very, like, clearly a very respected figure from Chinese history. So it would appear. No, I'm curious mm. about that because I know in the terms of modern mainland China, something that they do, and this is from a propaganda standpoint and mm. tying the current regime into the history of China from a very nationalistic perspective that somebody like Cao Cao would be somebody that they would most definitely celebrate. And just mm. in terms of an incredible figure and objectively so in military and world history. So I thought that was very interesting to know. I mean, who wouldn't want to celebrate a guy like that if he's part of your history? Now, granted, he's up to his neck in blood. <laughs> yeah, know? that's that's the, also know the that. odd thing about this. Yeah, but then m most famous historical figures are also up to their neck in blood in one way or another. Oceans and oceans of it. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. And I really appreciate you going more into depth about Cao Cao. It was a pleasure to do. Oh, absolutely. And we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKDInHistory, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram 
has AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.